All right, we are going to be in Acts chapter 24 this morning um, by way of uh, adding to the praise that I heard other people giving. Uh, Joy and I are empty nesters officially now, uh, which, you know, I'm sorry if you're if you're a child here, that probably sounds cold, but we had five kids uh, for a really long time and now our youngest 13 years, 30 years. Oh, that makes more sense. I'm like, that, that's bad math. Huh? That doesn't even make sense. Anyway, uh, to, to actually just be at this stage, we started with kids. We, uh, you know, it was kind of like one of those things where didn't quite follow the, the right rules exactly as far as that went. So now we're uh, still relatively young and empty nesters. So we're praising God for that. Pretty exciting. Okay, we are um, continuing in uh, Acts chapter 24 with Paul's kind of journey. He's finished his missionary journeys. He's uh, He's headed to Jerusalem despite everybody telling him, don't go, it's going to be, you know, bad if you do and but he, he was constrained by the holy spirit we're told to go and to, to be there and so he he gets to jerusalem things go just like the prophets told him they would go poorly he gets uh arrested in the, or bound in the temple pulled out beat up arrested now the romans don't know what to do with him uh so he just survived an assassination attempt by 40 enemies who are now really hungry because they vowed to not, they wouldn't eat or drink until they killed Paul and they missed. So I assume they just didn't ever eat or drink again. Probably not. But, and then God used the Roman commander Claudius Lysias and 470 of his men to safely escort Paul out of town and to deliver him to Caesarea where Governor Felix agreed to hear Paul's case. So that's kind of where we're starting out today. We're picking it up with Paul about to go on trial, but he has to wait for the Jewish religious leaders to assemble kind of their high-powered prosecution team before they, uh, you know, try Paul. And so in Acts 24.1, it says, After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus, and they laid before the governor their case against Paul. As I said last week, I've always loved those kind of courtroom drama shows, Perry Mason or uh, even old L.A. Law, of, of all things. I was thinking of that this week. It's like we used to love to watch that and see how it was going to work out or A Few Good Men. These these things where you see all of this evidence unfold and the battle take place in the courtroom is always fascinating. And that's kind of what this passage is going to be to some degree. We have the prosecution team made up of the Jewish high priest Ananias along with some of the Jewish elders and their spokesman Tertullus. Tertullus was probably a hired gun. He was a high-powered attorney that they brought in uh, because he was an expert in Roman law and their customs, and he would be able to come in and take down Paul. That's that's kind of the impression you get from this guy. They would have spared no expense in hiring the best because they wanted to see Paul finished. And then we have the defense team, which consists of Paul. If you if you're a fan of these kind of courtroom dramas, you know it's never a good idea to represent yourself in court. And here we just have Paul by himself there. But that's in fact not the case at all because Paul knows something they do not know. Uh, God is his defense team. If you're a Christian, we're told that Jesus is our advocate. He's our intercessor, and he's given us his Holy Spirit, who is also referred to as our advocate. So in this idea that we don't have to worry when times like these come because he will intercede for us he will be our advocate he will he will be there to give us the courage we need and the words we need and that's exactly what we see take place i don't know if you've ever been in one of those spots where you there's no way you would have known what to say or what to do and all of a sudden it's almost like power coming through as words start to come and bible verses start to come and arguments start to come and you're like this is really pretty amazing stuff and you know it's not you and and i think that we're going to get some of that 
So uh, the court is in session, and we have the not-so-honorable Felix presiding. Tertullus begins his opening argument by saying this to Felix. See if you can pick up on, on the attorneyism, if that's a word. Tertullus says to Felix, Since, through you, we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you, in your kindness, to hear us briefly. You can tell this guy is fluent in flattery. That's his, uh, his second language, apparently. I like the way one pastor put it. Tertullus is long on flattery, but short on honesty. The way he depicts Governor Felix is completely false. He credits him for being responsible for bringing them much peace and great reforms. But according to what we read in secular history, Felix was actually known for cruelty and immorality. He was well known for taking bribes, and his rule led to a big increase in crime and unrest. And he was finally removed from power because of the outcry of the people of Caesarea. So Felix was not a nice guy. Tertullus continues to bend the truth in verses 5 through 9. Listen to what he says about Paul. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him and we would have judged him according to our law. But the chief captain Lysias came and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come before you. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And the Jews also joined in in the charge, affirming all these things were so. It's kind of comical. Um, there's nothing new about an attorney being kind of like, you know, uh, skillfully manipulating a case with half-truths. This went on back then. It goes on today. This guy was good at it. He's very slick. He comes up with three charges against Paul. The first charge is that Paul is like a pestilent plague, just going through and devouring the land like a plague of locusts. He goes around just stirring up riots. That's what Paul's all about. Wherever Paul goes, he's like, well, he's like Antifa. You know, he's just going to go and find a way to stir up a riot here, stir up a riot there. That's what he's all about. And it sounds very serious, especially when it says that he does it among all the Jews throughout the whole world. I mean, this guy must be stopped, right? And the truth was that Paul simply told people about Jesus. He would go into a town. He would tell them about Jesus. And they didn't like the message. The riots were the people's reaction to the gospel, not Paul stirring things up. That's what the people did. The second allegation was that Paul was the ringleader of a dangerous cult called the Nazarenes. And you just kind of, you know, and again, they didn't call themselves the Nazarenes. They called themselves the way. But if you really want to, like, make it sound even worse, you pick a town that nothing good can come from, apparently, and be like, oh, he's, you know, a sect of the, you know, he's he's this white trash leader from this town that nothing good can come from and makes it sound even worse. Tertullus is using the same tactics that people use today when dealing with Christians. If they can paint us as fringe radicals with dangerous ideas that must be stopped, it, it does them well to get rid of us. And the truth is, Paul just wanted to convince people that Jesus was their promised Messiah, and he wanted them to meet their Savior and be saved. That's, that's all Paul. He had a heart of love for people, and he went out to tell them about Jesus. The third allegation is my favorite one. And that is that Paul tried, in quotes, to profane the temple. It's like, did he do it? No. But we think he really wanted to. You know, it's like, we're sure he was going to do it. He tried. 
Um, the truth was, again, that Paul was there peaceably, minding his own business, following the rules until the Jews confronted him, grabbed him, and started beating him, probably to death if the Romans wouldn't have come in and rescued Paul. So there's the whole case. It sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? He's a reputed troublemaker of a potentially radical sect who unsuccessfully tried to profane the temple. It's like, wow, that's that's quite a case you've got against him right there. It's not much. And even you get the feeling that Tertullus knows this because in his closing statement, he basically asks the judge, like, maybe you can come up with something or maybe Paul can just incriminate himself because he says in his closing statement, judge, by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Like, maybe that'll work because this isn't obviously going to work. It's kind of like we got nothing. And I love verse 9 that says the Jews also joined in the charge, like affirming these things were so. I don't know what that looked like, but I just picture them all nodding their heads vigorously. Esther told us is talking, you know, like, yeah, this, you know, mm-hmm. it totally reminds me of like a scene from the Holy Grail, which is probably wrong, but it, it's like, she's a witch, you know, and well, we put the nose on her and the hat, but she's a witch. And I was like, it doesn't make any sense, but they're all affirming this thing. That's not really the case. Sorry if that put a bad uh, scene in your mind. So the prosecution rests, and now Felix gives Paul the opportunity to defend himself. And all he does is just kind of nod at Paul. So there's not a lot of respect going on here. Verse 10 says, And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. That's all Paul says, which is pretty cool. He's respectful. He says, you know, hey, look, you've been a judge here for a long time. I expect that you're going to do the right thing here. And he just says, you know, Paul doesn't have a guilty conscience right now. He knows he hasn't done anything wrong. So he's just like, I'm happy just to let you know what took place. He doesn't have to manipulate things. He doesn't have to spin it. He just needs to talk. So verse 11, he says, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. In verse 14, Paul starts out by saying, but this I confess. And you can almost see Tertullus and the boys leaning forward in their chairs like, oh, he's going to say something. He's going to incriminate himself. What's he going to say? And this is what he says. Verse 14, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. This is definitely not the confession they were hoping to hear because he basically confesses to believing the same things they believe. He says, I worship the same God that they worship. I believe my Bible, everything laid out in the law and prophets, just like they do. I have the same future hope that they have in an event called the resurrection and a judgment to follow. He basically says, we're the same. He goes on to explain further in verse 17. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they had to be here before you to make the accusation, should they have anything against me. I kind of just picture Paul like looking around the courtroom right now. You know, some Jews from Asia, I'm surprised you didn't bring them because they were the ones that were the eyewitnesses and that brought the charges. It's kind of funny they're not in the courtroom today, but, you know, whatever. In verse 20 he says, or, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead 
that I'm on trial before you this day. I think Paul said, look, I wasn't guilty of stirring up any trouble. I wasn't doing anything wrong. And then he remembered like when they had this, this thing going on in the first council, he knew the Pharisees were there and he knew the, the Sadducees were there. And he basically kind of just lobs this grenade in the middle of them of like the resurrection because he knew that that would take all of the attention off of himself and that they would just start to devour each other, which is exactly what happened. So he's kind of like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm not guilty of, okay, there was this one little thing that I did, but come on, you know. And none of the guys there that day would have disagreed with him because they all believed in the resurrection. So I think that's what he's saying there. Well, meanwhile, back in the courtroom, Felix decides to call a recess and to postpone his judgment for the time being. Verse 22, it says, But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that None of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So Felix uses the excuse that he needs to hear from Lysias, um, who uh, was there when it all went down, to get to the bottom of it. I kind of like, I need to confer with my colleague, which that probably never even happened, but he was just trying to find a way to just put this thing to rest. The fact that he does give Paul so much liberty, though, it pretty much says that he didn't take the seriousness of the allegations you know, to heart. He didn't think Paul was really guilty. He, he kind of says, look, we'll put him in a nice little room. His friends can come visit. He can have some freedoms. But he did want to keep the Jewish leaders happy, and so he kept him detained or, or um, basically under house arrest. And that lasted for two years, so this is not a short period of time. But I like that God shows Paul mercy by making sure that his friends can visit him. I can't, I can't imagine how comforting it would be to Paul to have that ability to kind of have fellowship with other Christians, to have guys come and pray with them, read the word together, just enjoy some time. That's a huge blessing from God. And I don't know, you know, if, you, if you've got a personality like Paul, I kind of picture like Pastor David, who's always like ready to like move and take on the next thing or whatever. And Paul seems like that kind of guy, this type A, charge forward personality. And for him to be basically hobbled for two years probably would have been pretty miserable for him. But Sometimes that's exactly what we need God to do for us. You know, some people just go and go and go. And until God just kind of puts, you know, ankle bracelets on them and, you know, puts them under house arrest, they they won't stop. And so in a lot of ways, you see the grace of God even in Paul's life to where this guy needed. He'd been running hard for a long time. And now he's he's going to just stay put and rest and get some relief, uh, which is nice. Of God. And we don't know what all took place during this time either. Some people think he and Luke got together and worked on the book of Acts and, it's hard to know exactly, but we don't see any major books being written there in this time or anything like that. So hopefully it was just a time of rest. Uh, pray for Pastor Terry and, and Nancy. They're about to, not two years, but they're about to go away for a couple of months, right? Not two years. Uh, to just to, to have this kind of the same idea of a time of just breathe and get away and, and enjoy things. So pray for that time. Okay. In verse 24, we are introduced to Felix's wife, Drusilla. It's not a real pretty name in my mind, but apparently she was a knockout. Secular history records that she was beautiful. She was a Jewish princess. She had been married to another man, uh, the king of Emesa. So King Emesa wasn't Jewish, wanted to marry the Jewish princess. In order to do that, he had to become Jewish. And if, if I don't want to go into too much detail, but that would have involved a painful medical procedure to do this. So this guy really wanted to marry this woman. Uh, Right after they get married, or shortly after they get married, Felix lures her away from King Emesa and her Jewish faith, because we don't read about Felix having to go through that procedure. So this is bad. This guy's a creep. 
his wife now. I mean, they're they're basically you know, and and they're kind of like the power couple of the days. The I don't know Brangelina or whatever you want to think of. They're not together anymore, so I don't even know who the power couple is. Call me old, I don't care. But they were the when you were walking through the supermarket, they would have been the, on the, the the two on the front of the tabloids, you know, that everybody was talking about. It's like oh, you know, that couple. That's who they were. And now, for some reason, they want to call Paul in to talk to them. And I wonder about that. It's like, were they, there's something intrigued them about Paul and his message and who is this guy. And so they, they're saying, you know, we want to bring Paul in and, and have, have him talk to us. And I'm thinking about Paul at this point. What's he going to say to such a powerful man who seemingly holds his fate in his hands? What's he going to say to this guy? What would I say to this guy? You know, I'm like, okay, if I just play my cards right and we find out later that all you had to do is bribe this dude with some money and, you know, tell him he's strong and handsome and powerful and he'll probably let you go because that's who he was. And I'm just thinking this would have been pretty easy to get out of this situation by being really careful about what I said, you know, be like Tertullus and just flatter the dude and I'm out. Guess what Paul does? (laughs) Not that. Verse 24 says, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was terrified and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. That's fantastic. Paul gets the chance to say whatever he wants to these guys. And guess what he talks about? The need for them to repent before a holy God, confess their sins, and get right with Jesus. That's what he talks to them about. Self-control, righteousness. I'm thinking that probably went over really well. you know. And it's, he probably got specific, I'm guessing. He didn't pull any punches with these two. He told them what they needed to hear. Paul, the prisoner, puts Felix and Drusilla on trial. Your Bible caption for chapter 24 probably says something like Paul before Felix. But as one uh, pastor said, it should be Felix before Paul, because that's actually what's happening here. And Felix's response is unfortunately all too common. He hears the truth. He hears about a holy God who he won't measure up to the standard of, and he's terrified by it. And yet, what does he say? This isn't a convenient time for this. You know, this is, you know, I'll I'll call you back when, when it's more convenient. And I can't tell you how many people I run into that have that kind of mindset. You know, that's probably true. God probably is real. I probably will have to answer for him. But right now, that's going to get in the way of my my social calendar and my agenda and the things that are important to me and what I want to do. So I'll just put that off for a while. Maybe I'll get back to it. doesn't fit in with my plans. Well, maybe that day will come. Maybe there will be a more convenient time. But maybe that day won't come. That's kind of a big thing to to bet on, isn't it? Have you been thinking that it's time to get serious with God for a while, but just kind of putting it off? I'll just do my thing for a while longer and then get to it later. When will it be convenient? When will it fit into your plans? Or perhaps the more important question is, when will it be too late? So Drusilla is recorded in history even further. At the very young age of 41, on August 25th of AD 79, about 20 years after meeting Paul, she was one of those who died in Pompeii when Mount Vesuvius erupted along with her son. And I wonder, did she ever listen to Paul? 
Did she ever get on her knees before God and confess her sin and repent? We don't know. Was there ever a convenient time? It's hard to say, but it's sad to think about. None of us is guaranteed tomorrow. If this is something you've been putting off, today's the day of salvation. You know, we even have volcanoes nearby, not to freak anybody out, but I mean, <laughs> that was just came to my head. Sorry. Scratch that from the record. The section ends in verse 27 by saying, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. How'd you like to have that name? Portius Festus on your business card. That's pretty good. Desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So two long years for no good reason at all. Paul wasn't guilty. They didn't think he was guilty. They didn't think he'd done anything wrong. But just to appease the Jewish leaders, they kept him incarcerated. God told Paul that he was headed to Rome. And if you're like me, if somebody says, hey, you're heading to Rome, I'm thinking that's happening in the next week, right? Two years. And it just tells you that God's timetable isn't our timetable. We need to trust. Waiting stinks sometimes. You know, the old, you know, sometimes God says, opens a door, sometimes he closes a door, and sometimes he makes you wait in the hallway. Paul's in the hallway for a long time, and that's hard. But we need to continue to trust when that when something like that goes on and trust that it's purposeful. I'm always amazed that, like, you know, if I could run things, the world would have ended a long time ago. Uh, not because of wrath, but because I would just mess it up. But, you know, in my mind, like, this needs to happen now, and this is a really good plan. And I even try to help God out with these things a lot of times, and he doesn't seem to, to think it's as good as I think it is. But, like, you, when you see his, you know, all the parts and pieces that have to fall into place for something to come together according to his plan, it's beautiful to watch. You know, it's intricate, it's detailed, and, and we need to trust that sometimes and not just rush ahead. Rushing ahead gets you, uh, like, in the same spot as somebody like Abraham, like, I'll fix this, God. I know how to I know how to solve this problem. You know, and you end up with Ishmael instead of Isaac. And that's that would be what I would do continually. So wait upon God. Okay, so that's the passage, and we're going to briefly look at three takeaways from it. Uh, these are the takeaways. The importance of a Christian's confession, the luxury of a clear conscience, and the need for fearless proclamation. The first thing I was struck by in this passage is just the importance of a Christian's confession. When it came time for Paul to speak, to confess, you know, something, he knew exactly what to say. He said what makes us distinct as Christians. And I, and I would ask you, are these your confessions also? A lot of people name the name of Christ and they say that they are, you know, Christians. But this makes us distinctly Christian. The first confession is that God is the object of my worship. It is God who I worship, the one true God, the God that the Bible reveals, not the God that we make up in our own mind, not the one that we imagine, the one the Bible reveals. Everybody worships. It's the object of our worship that is vastly different. If you're a Christian, we worship God and worship means devotion and supreme value. There's nothing that compares. There's no other gods other than him. And we know that and we worship him accordingly. The second confession that Paul makes is that he believes everything written in the Bible. You know, there, there was a time where this wouldn't have even sounded funny, but today it sounds really weird. You do what? You believe everything written in the Bible? Paul did. I do. <laughs> it's come under attack in our day where people just kind of want to pick and choose. Well, this sounds pretty good, but I don't know about this over here. And I like that. Blessings are great. Curses, not so much. You know, we do this kind of thing. 
well, that sounds antiquated. I can't imagine that would still be for today. You know, you just dissect it up, you know, like you're Benihana's or something like that doing your thing. You can't do that with God's word. It is what it is. It's authoritative. We're supposed to yield to it, not vice versa. Paul's third confession is that my hope is in the resurrection. And this refers to a future hope for sure, but it refers to a present hope because Jesus was resurrected. Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if Jesus raised from the dead three days after he was buried, everything he claimed is true. He is God. He has power over death. He is able to forgive my sin. And he is able to resurrect me to eternal life when I die. That's all true. So I have a hope in the resurrection like you wouldn't believe. And if everything Jesus said is true, there's nothing more important in life than what you do with Jesus. Because one day you're going to stand before him either as your savior or as your judge. There's a huge difference between the two. So those are the confessions Paul makes. The next thing we see is that Paul had the luxury of a clear conscience. He makes that statement that really would have stood out in that crowd that day. He says that he, he, uh, because of these confessions that he holds to, he always strives to have a clear conscience before both God and man. What value can you place on having a clear conscience before God and man? Do you know what it's like to have a, a guilty conscience? I remember very well before meeting Jesus how guilty my conscience was. It was like a weight on me all the time. I was guilty before man and I was guilty before God and I always knew it and I always felt it. And after I met Jesus, it was like this weight was lifted off of me. Paul was probably the only one in the courtroom that day who could make that statement of having a clear conscience before God and man. Tertullus, just from his opening remarks, we know that he didn't. (laughs) Felix knew nothing of having a clear conscience before God and man. He'd just taken another man's wife and was okay with it. Even the high priest Ananias couldn't make that claim because in just a few years he would be assassinated by his own people for corruption. What allowed Paul to have a clear conscience? And why did it matter to him so much? And and I I just have to say, I I know exactly what Paul's talking about, because when I met Jesus, everything changed. My guilt and my shame was transferred to him, and I received his righteousness and his perfection. You know, that's referred to in Christianity as the great exchange. He takes my sin and guilt, and I get his righteousness. And it's a transaction that makes no sense at all, but it's real. And to know that, you know, it's like, it's, it's the greatest feeling that you you can ever have to know that I'm okay with God and God's okay with me. And I'm going to stand before him and he's going to welcome me as a son. That's crazy to think about. He's going to seat me at his table, not as his enemy, but as his friend, because of what Jesus did, because I placed my faith in what he's done at the cross. That's great. I feel light right now. I feel like, you know, it's like, yeah. Well, the next thing we see in the last one is the need for fearless proclamation. You know, Paul was physically bound before the governor, but he had complete freedom to fearlessly proclaim the gospel to these guys. Isn't that amazing? Didn't even phase him. That was more important to him than anything else. You know, he did the opposite of what so many Christians do today. He told Felix what he didn't want to hear and what he knew was probably going to get him into trouble. We just don't do that anymore, do we? It's like if we think somebody doesn't want to hear something, we're just like, nah, I won't, I won't say that. Will this get me in trouble? I'll be quiet. Paul didn't care. 
If you're like me, I shy away from telling people about their need for Jesus because you don't want to be offensive. You want people to like you. You're afraid of how they'll respond or what they'll think of you. But what we see Paul doing here is he put Felix and Drusilla's eternity before his own temporal comfort. You ever thought about it in those terms? Saving them was more important than saving himself. wasn't even a question for him. So he told them what they needed to hear, which really was the most selfless and loving thing for him to do. You know, I started thinking about this, and I thought, do you ever wonder why Paul or others like him didn't just agree to stop preaching or to give that bribe or do whatever they had to do just to get out of that situation? Even if they didn't even mean it. You know, I'm thinking like me, I'm like, yeah, I won't preach anymore. Bye. And then like, okay, I'll, I'll go do it. I'll, I'll lay low for a while. I mean, they could have just told these guys what they wanted to hear and just toned it down a bit, right? Stop preaching the controversial stuff, maybe. Compromise the message a little. Give the people what they want. It's got to be a tempting thing to do. But you don't see him yield to that. Because you can't compromise on the gospel. If you compromise on the gospel, you lose salvation. Are you guys, you guys are familiar with John Bunyan? So this is not the guy with the axe. It's the guy that wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. Two different guys. I'll probably say Paul, because I always do it. That's why I'm warning you ahead of time. John Bunyan was put in prison in 1660 for publicly preaching God's word and being unwilling to conform to the doctrines and practices of the Church of England. He remained in prison for over 12 years. Just think about, just try to think about something 12 years ago. The door wasn't even a church 12 years ago. I mean, that's just to give you perspective. Think of 12 years ago. 12 years is a long time. He could have left at any time by just agreeing to apologize to the magistrates and to stop preaching the word. That's all he had to do. Say he was sorry, stop preaching the word. Now it gets even harder. Sorry. He had a wife and seven children. One of his kids was blind. Boy, now that makes it harder, doesn't it? All he has to do is say, sorry, I won't do this anymore. He goes home to his family. He compared his time apart from them to his flesh being pulled from his bones. And yet he refused to compromise his beliefs. He said, if you let me out of prison today, I will preach the gospel again tomorrow by the grace of God. And he said, I will stay in prison till the moss grows on my eyebrows rather than make a slaughterhouse of my principles. It's so convicting to see people like Paul and, and John Bunyan who they understood what was at stake here. People's eternity was at stake and they weren't going to they weren't going to budge. And, and it's so inspiring to me and also so convicting to me at the same time. So those are the three big takeaways. As Christians, we hold to our confession. We don't move. We hold to our confession. We keep our clear conscience before God and man. And we fearlessly proclaim the good news that God has sent a Savior into the world. And if you believe, if you, if you trust in who Jesus is and what he's done, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and place your faith in that for salvation, you'll be reconciled to God. That's a good deal. Today's the day of salvation. If this is something you've been putting off, put it off no longer, please. Father, thank you so much for the, these accounts of the Bible that, that show us guys like Paul 
and for stories throughout history, uh, like John Bunyan, Lord, and we, we just look at what you did through men like this that held fast to their convictions. Did it cost them a lot? Of course it did. But look at what came from their ministries and their lives, Lord. And we just want to be used by you, Lord. We want to tell others about who you are and what you've done. And so we pray that you would give us that courage. Not fear, Lord, but courage, just as Paul Campbell was saying earlier, Lord, that we would have courage over fear, that we would proclaim fearlessly who Jesus is and what, what he's done for people around us. And you give us these opportunities as a church. And thank you so much for the salvation that you've, you've brought our way, Lord. Thank you that somebody came and told us. In Jesus' name, amen.